Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. As you may have realized, I watch a lot of sports. That's why I like Prime Video. It has all my sports in one app, like the National Women's Soccer League included with Prime. Plus, you can buy Premier Boxing or stream the NHL and NBA playoffs on Max with the Bleacher Report Sports add-on or add Paramount Plus for the Masters on CBS. Prime Video. It's all your favorite sports in one place. Restrictions apply. Prime membership required for add-on subscriptions. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. It is getting that time of the year. It's Miller time. You don't need a watch or a clock to tell you. It's Miller time. Weather gets a little bit warmer. All of a sudden, the beer gets a little colder. It's beer cracking season. It, it, whoa, okay. I don't know if it says that on the calendar. Uh, Miller Lite, great taste, less filling, tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com slash Patrick or... You can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. And as always, please celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer. Miller Lite. We interrupt your usual stream of DP Show content to bring you a special episode of a new podcast on the Dan Patrick Show Network. It's called Westward. Westward chronicles the history of basketball in the NBA and how the city of Los Angeles not only saved the fledgling league by bringing the Lakers from Minneapolis, but gave birth to the modern NBA with Showtime. Told through the lens of the great Jerry West, who helped build the dynasty of the Lakers, Westward now follows the former Hall of Famer as he attempts to build a dynasty with L.A.'s other NBA team, the Clippers. Narrators are Keith David, Tim Livingston, Bobby Glanton Smith. I hope you enjoy it. This is Westward. Westward is a production of the Dan Patrick Podcast Network and iHeartRadio. Episode 3 Built on a Fault Line. The city of Los Angeles was built on ground that shifts. And in June of 1960, less than a week after the team formerly known as the Minneapolis Lakers arrived in Los Angeles, players would experience its first taste of West Coast living when a 6.0 struck off the coast of California. 1960 emerges as the most disastrous earthquake year of modern times. Along the California coast, it swept in at an angle, ripping coastal installations and causing heavy damages. But while the organization had to adjust to the ground moving beneath them on occasion, the NBA was amidst a much greater seismic shift as the game's power had moved to the furthest franchise on the East Coast and settled in an arena built above the North Station where the Boston and Maine railroads met. It had originally been called Madison Square Garden, but it had been shortened to just 
The Garden. Just a decade into the new NBA, when every team in the league was basically just thinking about survival, there was one team and one coach who were only thinking about basketball. And that was Red Arbuck and, of course, the Boston Celtics. Because prior to the 1956 season, the team made three moves that changed the course of history in the NBA. See, Bill Russell may be remembered as the marquee pick in that draft, but he wasn't the Celtics' first selection that year. It was Tommy Heinsohn, a forward from Holy Cross. As part of an effort to generate fan interest in the fledgling NBA, the league instituted a special rule granting teams exclusive rights to claim locally-based college players. That meant that Bill Russell, who was clearly the best player in the draft, would be next, and that's who Arbach really wanted. And the problem was that Boston had the seventh pick, and there was no way Russell was going to slide to seven. But the Celtic coach had a plan. The St. Louis Hawks always coveted Celtic all-star Ed McCauley because he was from St. Louis. So Arbach traded him for the number two pick, but that still didn't guarantee Russell. So Arbach had to ensure that the Rochester Royals, who had the number one pick, would pass on Russell. And so he did something crazy. Take a world full of sights and put it on ice. That's the ice capades. Throughout the 1940s and 50s, a group of arena owners had purchased a troupe of dancing ice skaters and created a touring show called Ice Capades. The show had proven hugely popular and, more importantly, lucrative for any venue able to book them. Rochester Royal owner Lee Harrison was a fan, and Boston Celtic owner Walter Brown just happened to be one of the Ice Capades owners. So Arbok has Brown call Harrison and offers him the Ice Capades for a week if they pass on Russell. And with their top pick, the Rochester Royals would draft a player by the name of Shugo Green out of Duquesne. The Celtics then scooped up Russell, and as a cherry on top, they also get Casey Jones in the second round. In one singular draft, Red Auerbach's Celtics would acquire three future Hall of Famers, creating a dynasty the likes of which the NBA would never see, including eight consecutive NBA championships, the first of which would be against the Minneapolis Lakers and their rookie phenom, Elgin Baylor. They had uh, one player on their particular team that was just, we could not do very much with it. And that was entirely later. That was Bill Russell. Bill Russell. Russell was, Russell was just unbelievable. Because Russell was the best, I mean, defensive player you ever find. I mean, it was very difficult. But in the summer of 1960, Elgin Baylor and the Lakers would add a player who would help turn that 10 years of hell pain into a furious, decade-long struggle that would not only wrest basketball supremacy from the East Coast stronghold of the Boston Celtics, but would sow the seeds of a bitter coastal rivalry that still exists today. The 1960 NBA draft was arguably the richest draft in league history. Four Hall of Famers in the first 10 picks. And one of those picks was a lanky sharpshooter from the sticks of West Virginia. When I first came into the league, I wasn't even sure I was good enough to play, but, you know, I could run and jump like crazy. Uh, I had a very big vertical, and that, that's before they even started to, uh, 
you know, pay attention to stuff like that. And then extremely long arms. And it was always really funny to me that they would put that I was six feet two and when I'm actually over six four and you know, with a forty inch sleeve length it makes you a lot bigger. And, you know, if my if the physical part of it caught up with the mental part of it and that was the most difficult transition for me, the mental part of it. You had to feel confidence and, and the confidence you got were uh, you, you got from playing against these people. West would be the Lakers' first pick in Los Angeles and the number two overall behind Cincinnati's Oscar Robertson. But signing the All-American from West Virginia would prove difficult as another Ohio area team, the ABL's Cleveland Pipers, also had their eyes on West. The Pipers were owned by a brash and brilliant young businessman who was educated at MIT and entered the world of sports franchises against his father's wishes. His name was George Steinbrenner. My dad had a fight trying to get Jerry West and Steinbrenner was offering Jerry a chance to play at almost the same level as he would play in the NBA. And he didn't have a pot to piss in, as you would expect from a guy who just gets out of West Virginia in that era. So George uh, wanted to see me, and I visited with him. At that point in time, I think all young kids, uh, if you're any good, and particularly if you know you had higher a aspiration, when somebody talking about something had been around for a while, but not forever, the NBA. Um, that was always kind of a dream of mine because I'd watched, you know, some of the great, great players that played in that era. And also I felt that if I were going to do something, the most important thing to be the most competitive person I could be was to play against better players. Not only did Steinbrenner offer West NBA money, he also offered him something most NBA players of that era needed during the offseason a job. He was really pressing me pretty hard about doing this. His father was in the shipbuilding business, and I'm going to be an insurance salesman. Um, again, coming from West Virginia, I can't imagine me selling any, a piece of candy, much less an insurance policy to someone. As Steinbrenner pushed Jerry West, Laker owner Bob Short pulled, even hiring his former college coach, Fred Schaus, to take over the team. But ultimately, it was West's drive that made the decision. Uh, the money had nothing to do with it. I just wanted to play against what I felt was the best competition. And um, obviously, I think I made the right decision. The kid who grew up in the foothills of the Allegheny Mountains, not far from places with names like Gunstock Knob, was now moving to Los Angeles, the home of Beverly Hills and Hollywood. You know, I hadn't traveled hardly any at all when I was a kid. As I say, we had no means of transportation, so I was kind of a, I don't, a shut-in in terms of expanding uh, the knowledge I had about other cities and the way that people uh, conducted themselves in other cities compared to a very really rural, small place that I grew up in. And it was a complete uh, learning experience for me. 
first time I came out here, and I was kind of awestruck. Uh, I will never, never forget we stayed at the old Ambassador Hotel on Wilshire Boulevard, and that's where Robert Kennedy got killed. I was 21. They took us to the nightclub, the Coconut Grove, the nightclub, these old hillbillies from West Virginia. And so we went there, and the thing I noticed that you could just walk right across the street. You didn't have to even walk across. And at that point in time, traffic stopped and let you go. I was amazed how wide the, the streets were. And we spent our time there, and really it was an eye-opening uh, for me in the sense, uh, you know, a very relaxed attitude. Bob Short, the Lakers' quiet Midwest owner, had somehow managed to outduel his audacious East Coast counterpart. The Los Angeles Lakers had gotten its man, and Elgin Baylor wouldn't get a sidekick. He would get a sidearm. But Laker head coach Fred Schaus would keep Jerry West holstered for much of his rookie season. I played for him in college for three years. He helped recruit me. But when I got to Los Angeles here, it was completely different. Uh, he would not, I did not play a whole lot my, my, the first half of my um, rookie season. And when I say a whole lot, I, I don't think I ever played more than 20 minutes a game. And yet I was, felt like I was making progress, but he would tell the sports writers, well, you know, he's, he's, he's going to get hurt. He's, <laughs> he's not very big and not only about 178 pounds and well, I never missed a game in, in uh, college. So um, it, was, uh, it was a huge adjustment for me. For Jerry West's education, he would have to look no further than Elgin Baylor. Having Elgin Baylor and to be alongside of him and to be around him, how he treated me, he treated me like an equal when for a while I wasn't close to his equal. But he helped me become a better player by just watching him. There was no doubt that once Jerry West joined the Lakers in Los Angeles, it was like a warning bell had gone off to the rest of the league that this team was going to be special. But the bell that Laker owner Bob Short really wanted to ring was the one in his Laker cash register as the team still struggled to make ends meet. Bob Short invested a ton of money into this team, and this was really the first quality product that he produced. Now we just need more people to watch him. But I think my dad recognized that people pay money to see stars, whether they're on the court like Elgin Baylor, Jerry West, Gail Goodrich, or they're sitting in the stands by the early 1960s, Doris Marianne Kappelhoff had become a household name. She went by Doris Day. Doris Day was the original LA Lakers celebrity. Bob Short would leave her two tickets to every single game because Short knew that having Doris Day at his games was good for business. It was from that moment that the Lakers had a direct connection with Hollywood. Fellow A-listers like Dean Martin, Jack Lemmon, and Walter Matthau would follow Day. With superstars like Elgin Baylor and Jerry West on the Laker court, and a burgeoning celebrity fan base in the stands, Bob Short's big move finally began to pay off, and the seats at their Memorial Sports Arena on South Figueroa Street slowly began to fill up. 
This was the real birth of Showtime, which of course Jerry Buss would later be credited for, but Bob Short tried everything. He even tried cheerleaders for the first time long before the Laker girls. But according to Debbie Danielson, who was one of those original Laker cheerleaders, it didn't go over too well. My mother was a choreographer, and she taught dancing all through the 50s, and she started a high school dance line at St. Louis Park High School. We were the first in the league to have cheerleaders. A general manager for the Lakers lived in St. Louis Park, and he may have seen us perform and maybe got the idea that the Lakers needed something to liven up the games. So I believe he had contacted my mother, and uh, that's how the Lakerettes got started. So us six little high school girls with our 1950s attire on got out there, and we would jump out and do a few cheers uh, at the timeouts. It was kind of sketchy as to how we were accepted to begin with. And one thing I remember vividly is the, um, the Boston Celtics were in town, and Red Auerbach was the coach, and we got out on the floor during a timeout, and he screamed, get those goddamn girls off the floor. You are listening to Westward on the Dan Patrick Podcast Network. We'll be right back. The Lakers' dynamic duo of Baylor and West proved to be the most lethal in the NBA's Western Conference. And in just their second year playing together, the pair would have their first opportunity to dethrone the mighty Boston Celtics. The 1961-62 NBA championship would go a complete series, needing an overtime in Game 7 to be decided. But while the Celtics may have prevailed, it was the fiery Lakers whose salvo would be remembered, as Elgin Baylor and Jerry West would combine for over 500 points. Game 5 of the series would also see Baylor erupt for 61 points an NBA final record that still stands to this day. But it was still no consolation for his second loss to the Celtics. The loss to the Celtics would be Jerry West's first. That's going back a long way. I just think probably the thing that uh, how thrilled, I think that was a seven game series. And uh, I just felt that that's when the Lakers had turned the corner with uh, the fans. There was, the games were sold out Yes, a young player trying to win something very special, which is, is elusive, and everyone can't get there. If anything, the Lakers would improve the following season, finishing with the best record in the Western Conference. The Lakers would cruise through the playoffs, only to be ousted once again by the Boston Celtics, this time in only six games. As a result of these losses, moving toward the 64-65 season, Laker owner Bob Short felt that both his investment and his team had plateaued. He made plans to sell the team, a third time for the franchise since entering the league. My dad originally became interested in the Minneapolis Lakers in order to try to save the franchise for Minneapolis. It was more of an attempt at, frankly, civic boosterism because they believed having a professional franchise in Minneapolis made Minneapolis 
a world-class city. But he was never going to be a long-term owner in Los Angeles. My dad was a young business guy at the time. He had seven kids under the age of 11 and needed to focus his attention on his growing business in the trucking business that was based in the Twin Cities. So in 1965, the same year that Marvin Crater buys the best team in the NBA, the Celtics, for $3 million, Bob Short puts a price tag on the Lakers for $5 million, which was absurd. There wasn't a business person in America who was going to pay anywhere close to that. There wasn't. But there would be one in Canada. As his son, John Kent Cook, remembers. My father heard about it and uh, uh, became interested. He told me that he could see how popular it was going to be, particularly in Los Angeles. So it was just a matter of time. And he was obviously very right. Jack Kent Cook was born and raised in Ontario, Canada. And as a boy, sold encyclopedias door to door. Born with a knack for business and a love for sports, Cook went into media in his 20s and built an empire. But having been told that nearly a quarter million Canadian expatriates had moved to Southern California, Cook envisioned the unthinkable, a professional hockey team in Los Angeles. As a step towards this, he would purchase the Los Angeles Lakers, despite never having seen an NBA game. Well, I think that that is, I don't know if he never uh, saw a basketball game, but he certainly uh, was uh, unfamiliar with basketball. You see, uh, he, as I am, was born and raised in Toronto, Canada, and he was born in Hamilton, Canada. And up in Canada, there's only one sport, and it's called hockey. Basketball was uh, below curling up there in popularity. My dad was not a rich man. My grandfather was a fireman. He was in the trucking business, but it was a small business. And so I remember him being so proud. They sold the team for what was the highest price at the time ever paid for a sports franchise. There were many lasting legacies of the Bob Short-owned Lakers. Minneapolis bred and owned. The team had been pulled from the brink of bankruptcy, survived a plane crash, and proved that professional basketball could flourish in Los Angeles. While his team had never won an NBA title under his ownership, Bob Short had laid the foundation of a championship franchise. My dad is, I can say this on the positive side, would be more akin to what I think of a Jerry Jones kind of owner where he is involved in his players and considered them to be friends, but he took a real interest in the lives of these young men. My dad continued to listen to games after he sold them, continued to have contact, I think, with some of the players, especially the players in Minneapolis. In 1965, just months before Bob Short's Lakers were sold to Jack Kent Cook, the team would express their gratitude by reaching the NBA Finals once again only to lose to the Boston Celtics. You are listening to Westward on the Dan Patrick Podcast Network. We'll be right back. For a community to embrace a sports team fully, they need a sense of their mutual history and a sense of place. Bob Short and the Minneapolis team gave the Lakers a sense of history. 
but it would be Jack Kent Cooke who would give the Lakers and the city of Los Angeles their sense of place. The Lakers were playing in the sports arena in Los Angeles. The NHL wanted to have an expansion, uh, particularly to the West Coast of the United States. And so they said that they were interested in, uh, in offers from different sportsmen. And uh, Dad was one of them. Dan Reeves, who owned the L.A. Rams at that time, and who also owned the minor league hockey club that played in the sports arena, uh, was also one of the NHL franchise. The sports arena, however, being a public entity, said that Jack Kent Cook, if he got the franchise, couldn't play in the sports arena in Los Angeles. Well, at that point, my father said, I'll build my own arena. The Laker year, of course, was marked for the opening of their new home, the fabulous Forum in Englewood. And the first Lakers game on July 1st, 1966, Jack Kent Cook broke ground on the Los Angeles Forum. The arena would be a state-of-the-art structure and was brought to life by engineers Carl Johnson and Sven Nielsen. When finished, it would be the only arena of its size in the world that would have no major support pillars. It was designed by Charles Luckton, and the first rendering looked like a birthday cake. It was dreadful. And my father said to him that he wanted something classier than that, something like the form. But as Jack Kent Cook would build the Lakers' new home, his team would take a step backwards. The nucleus of that team had been to three finals in five years. Elgin Baylor had been to four. And even though they had a great core and they were so much fun to watch, the team had been built on a fault line. They had no big man. And every time they went to the finals against the Celtics, Bill Russell just destroyed them. In an attempt to shake up his team and push it over the edge, Cook would move head coach Fred Schaus to the front office and hand the reins to a fiery college coach from Montclair, New Jersey, named Butch Van Bredikoff. I like Bill Van Bredikoff away from the court. I liked him away from the court. And he, he expected certain things. He thought basketball was, you know, a beautiful canvas and everyone could paint a beautiful picture. Well, there's a lot of pictures that people don't think are very beautiful. And they still are, people like them because of different tastes. The Princeton-educated Van Bredikoff had never coached at the professional level, but was neither phased by the bright lights of Tinseltown nor the Lakers' star-studded roster. Even without a center, the Lakers were still the best in the West, but they had a coaching problem. Van Bredekoff wasn't the answer. He had three future Hall of Famers in Goodrich, West, and Baylor, and all those guys liked to run. Van Bredekoff liked a very structured half-court offense. So there was a huge disconnect between the talent and the coach, and it's the coach's job to adjust, and Van Bredekoff just couldn't. Jack Kent Cook's dream was to finish construction on the Forum within a year and christen it with a champion. And he would achieve both. In the winter of 1968. It's the deciding game of basketball's World Series as Boston leads the Lakers three games to two in the Los Angeles Forum. The Los Angeles Lakers played their first game in the newly built Los Angeles Forum. As owner Jack Kent Cook had envisioned, 
the Lakers finally had roots in their own home. And on Thursday, May 2nd, 1968, his fabulous forum would indeed christen its first champion. Havlicek drives around a triple screen, and the never-say-die Boston team wins the world's professional basketball crown, 124-109 to in the final against Los Angeles. A fitting climax to the Converse Cavalcade. What it's like to be on the losing end, uh, not one time, but numerous times against the Celtics, and it just was not something that um, that was a feeling to have to endure that. And uh, unfortunately, all of us did. You know, get there and have high expectations and at the end of the day, you go home frustrated and, and uh, really down those things take its toll and, and they certainly took a toll on me. The fabulous forum would be home to the Los Angeles Lakers for over three decades. And for years after the team left, the dated arena wasn't unlike one of the old ruins of Rome, of which it was named. But in a case of mythical storytelling that could only happen in Los Angeles, the Lakers' old home has been bought and now being resurrected, and done so by their current foe. There could be a big shift coming to Inglewood. The forum, obviously historic, home of the Lakers. According to ESPN.com, Clippers owner Steve Ballmer is in negotiations to buy the Forum. And once again, the home of his old employer is now owned by Jerry West's new employer, Clipper owner Steve Ballmer. Steve Ballmer, in many ways, is very much like Jerry Buss. And he's got enormous wealth. You never know he had He's a man of the people. You never know he had it. Uh, but he is unbelievably philanthropic. He's going to get a building built where people think or not. He will get a building built. It will be the best building in Los Angeles. And he doesn't have to. That will be the Clippers building, not the Lakers building. And I think that will be a great start to trying to level the playing field in terms of creating your own fans. According to cultural historian D.J. Waldy, there is a third aspect to a city embracing a franchise. I think for a community to embrace a sports team fully, they need a sense of their mutual history, a sense of place, and a willingness to forgive. Sure, we all uh, love a winner, and we all want our hometown team to come out on top. Like, Obviously, it can't happen. Uh, there will be winning seasons and there will be losing seasons. But to maintain that identity in good seasons and in bad seasons. In sports and competition, there isn't a lot of room for forgiveness. Franchises move. Teams lose. Loyalties shift. But rarely do they all happen in the same city. I've learned more by failing than I have by winning, a lot more. You know, people always talk about getting to the top of the mountain. Well, it's okay because you, sometimes you get halfway up and you can't make it any farther. Some, sometimes you get three quarters of the way up and you can't make it any farther going forward. 
I've always taken that as a motivation to try to do everything better in my life, to try to treat people better, to try to give more, try to be a better person. There's not one person smart enough to do this alone. And life is too short to be lived alone anyway, by the way. And that's what makes teams so special when you have all these ingredients that uh, are necessary to win at the very highest level. On October 22, 2019, a nexus of these moving parts would play out on the NBA's opening night in Los Angeles. The crowds around the Staples Center in downtown Los Angeles has been building all day and hitting a crescendo for this much-anticipated season opener. With a new lineup and a renewed sense of history, Los Angeles' other team would land the first blow. Here comes James, working on Harrell, kicks it out. Daniels with the three, that'll be it. The Clippers win round one with the Lakers. The city's two professional franchises have become polar opposites. One waits for a sense of place in the future. Until then, they run from their past, while the other run towards it embracing the former glory of an empire that once belonged to them. One man knows this better than anyone, because he is a part of both. What would a championship mean to Clippers fans? Oh my God. Uh, to be involved in, in uh, a team that uh, wins, special. But here in Los Angeles, which is my home, where I grew up here, and I know so many people here, I think it would be great for the Lakers, too, also, even though they... Probably wouldn't want to talk about it, but I think it would be great for them. In a sense, you know, we got to do more. And so it creates the ultimate competition within a city. Uh, can you imagine? It would mean everything to me. It really would. The city of Los Angeles was built on ground that shifts. So too, at times, does its loyalties. History, place, forgiveness, all a part of the moving bedrock beneath two teams, both trying to find a way to coexist while winning. Next time on Westward. While the Laker franchise would once again try to heal after their sixth loss to the Celtics in the finals, Outside the fabulous forum, the city of Los Angeles was still healing from another wound. This one, much larger. It began with police and rioters clashing on a hot Wednesday night, but within a matter of hours, it was completely out of hand. The Watts Rebellion would be a flashpoint, not just for Los Angeles, but for the game of basketball. With 50% of NBA rosters comprising of black players, the league was widely perceived as an African-American sport. Stylistically, the game had evolved from the old four-bounce passes and a layup to a high-flying, above-the-rim, fast-paced game. I don't try to think that I'm any different than anyone, regardless of what race you are, okay? I looked at myself as a competitor. The Minneapolis Lakers had sent five championship banners to L.A. when the franchise moved in 1960. 
and though they would adorn the walls of the Forum, they were more akin to relics. Tradition had belonged to them. What they needed was achievement. Elgin was in his 10th year. Jerry had been hampered by injuries. So Cook faced the classic team building dilemma. Either tweak the engine to get over the top or blow the whole thing up. Cook then made the trade that changed the NBA. Wilt wanted to play in LA for two reasons. One, he would win there. And two, pretty much the same reason as everyone, show business. On July 12, 1969, under a newspaper headline usually reserved for declarations of war or election results, the Los Angeles Times announced Wilt signs five-year contract with Lakers for $1 million. Best team ever predicted for coming season. But that fairy tale movie they were hoping for, it turned into a horror flick. Will is not the easiest guy in the world to play with, you know, because Will wants to take charge and control of everything. I felt horrible for Will, and it was like, you know, who do you side with? As I say, it was an uncomfortable time for all of us. Westward is a production of the Dan Patrick Podcast Network, iHeartRadio, and Joy Road Entertainment in association with Workhouse Media and Sugar 23. Executive produced by Paul Anderson and Nick Panella for Workhouse Media and by Michael Sugar and Mike Mayer for Sugar 23. Joy Road Entertainment is P.G. Cuscieri, Jim Young, Matthew Hatchett, Tim Livingston, and I'm Bobby Glanton Smith. Produced by Casey Whalen and edited by Charlie Magdaleno, Michael Keane, and Sarah Bukinski at Whalen Productions. Associate producers Cole Ocasio. Westward is narrated by Emmy Award winner Keith David. Producers would like to thank Chris Lloyd, George Lopez, Harold Gifford, and NPR's DJ Waldy for their contributions. Our most sincere gratitude also goes to the family of Bob Short, DJ Waldy, Debbie Danielson, Eric Nicewanger, Brian Short, the late Elgin Baylor, and the good people of Carroll, Iowa, and of course, the great Jerry West. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. It is getting that time of the year. It's Miller time. You don't need a watch or a clock to tell you. It's Miller time. Weather gets a little bit warmer. All of a sudden, the beer gets a little colder. It's beer cracking season. It, it, whoa, okay. I don't know if it says that on the calendar. 
Uh, Miller Lite, great taste, less filling, tastes like Miller Tongue. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com slash Patrick, or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. And as always, please celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories per 12 ounces, fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer. Miller Lite. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.